0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the
1: sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And if there's anyone out there listening right now who's looking for ransom, I can tell them I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. You know, Kevin,
0: those skills might actually come in handy because I I just met a woman who needs someone to kill her husband for insurance money. (laughs)
1: It seems a little bit off-brand for Liam Neeson to be trying that, but, uh, you know, I'll give him a call, see what he says. Listeners, we've got
0: a great episode coming up. First, we look at the new Liam Neeson joint from James Darcy, made in Italy.
1: And then we're going to be continuing our series on film noir with one of the greats. It's Billy Wilder's 1944 Double Indemnity.
0: Kevin, I'm so excited. I'm shaking like a leaf. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 259, of Seeing and Believing.
1: We'll mark the view as a 10, but the potholes down that drive are a serious drawback. I may have whiplash. Things can only get better. Front door? Uh... I don't hear from you for months. And then this sudden need to sell the Tuscan house by last Tuesday. The house has been empty for 20 years. We just cheer the place up a bit and get it sold.
0: Tuscany is a romantic idyll. It's why all my clients come here. You have delivered me a building site whose walls seem to have been painted by Mussolini.
1: I wouldn't go on the bathroom if I were you. There's a large weasel in the sink. That's not a euphemism
0: he's like it's a rat, boat, like good teeth,
1: the size of a baguette, like a rat baguette.
0: Listeners, that is a clip from the new film Made in Italy. We're gonna hop into our review of that movie here in a bit. For now, Kevin, I want to direct listeners to the second half of our show and do a little previewing because our summer of darkness continues. With a look at Double Indemnity, which I know is one of your favorite movies of all time.
1: Yeah, I am really excited to talk about it. I can't hide it. Uh, there's no point in trying to dissemble. Double Indemnity is great, and mm. our discussion of it is also going to be great. I can feel it. I, I,
0: I can feel it, too. And I, I need to alert listeners. You like this movie so much that it's on your top four on Letterboxd. You know where it says favorite movies... It's right there. So that that's a pretty high honor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't typically make a practice of ranking my very favorite movies because it's like choosing between my children. But if you held a gun to my head on the observation deck of a very slow-moving train <laughs> and threatened me, then Double Indemnity would be in the top five, I would say.
0: Yeah, no, no, I... I would probably choose that, too, if I, were, if I were on a train and someone was going to push me off and double indemnity all the way. <laughs> we're going to get to that review in the second half of our episode. We talked about In a Lonely Place last week. If you haven't caught up with that episode, make sure to check that out. That was number one in our Summer of Darkness series. We've got a, a great series that's going to be coming your way now through the beginning of September. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. This week's episode, however, begins with a look at James Darcy's directorial debut, Made in Italy. Here's the movie's official synopsis. Made in Italy is a heartwarming father-son story set in glorious Tuscany about bohemian London artist Robert, played by Liam Neeson, who returns to Italy with his estranged son, Jack, played by Michelle Richardson, to make a quick sale of the house they inherited from his late wife. Neither expects to find the once beautiful villa in such a state of disrepair, renovations going badly with father and son soon finding themselves at odds. Kevin, given the state of the last year, most people are aching to get away to go visit some exotic locale. Any locale will do, but Italy sounds especially nice this time of year. So. To get our discussion started, in your opinion, did James Darcy's Made in Italy wrap you up in the beauty of the Tuscany countryside? And do you think the film's setting helps
1: to fill in the primary relationships portrayed in the movie? I mean, I'm I'm going to to be frank. I think the film setting is pretty much the only thing this movie has going ah. for it. Uh, this is this movie is impressive in a certain way and and by that. (laughs) I mean, it's impressive in that it seems to be constructed entirely of cliches. Like the it's, it's the rare movie. I feel like where I can watch it and literally narrate the plot beats as they are occurring on, on screen in front of me. It's, I'm not the sort of person who's very good at standing outside of the story and, and, sort of seeing the screenwriting machinery at work, right? Like, usually I'm, I'm able to sort of, like, lose myself in a story and just let myself uh, enjoy it. And then, you know, after it's over, then that's kind of when the analysis brain kicks in. This one, I it's made in Italy is so thin that I was not able to get lost in anything. It'd be like getting lost in a paper bag. It's, uh, it's just... It's not a very good movie, and I know I'm I'm maybe seeming a little bit savage here, but <laughs> I I frankly uh, I can't imagine ever needing to watch *Made in Italy* when it seems to have been cobbled together Frankenstein-like from plot points from other probably better movies.
0: <laughs> You're like I I don't want to be you know so savage, but. This is my—movies are my only escape in the world today. (laughs) Um, Okay, so when I saw the poster for this film, I didn't watch a trailer before watching it, and I read a shorter synopsis than the one that I gave a moment ago. I thought this was going to be some sort of a kind of slow-moving emotional drama, and we're going to really get at these characters— uh, their insides and their emotional cores, and 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 that's not really the case. This is a paint by the numbers drama, and like you said, Kevin, you can you can outline the plot within the first two three minutes. I mean, it is it is instant. You know what's going to happen. You know where these characters are going to go. You know that there's going to be some sort of uh, you know reconciliation or peace and then there's going to be another conflict and then you know they're gonna go their separate ways and then they're gonna come back together saying that I like this movie a lot more than I thought I I would and from the beginning and I I just kind of enjoyed the ride I kind of just sat back and said okay I know where this is going I know what it wants to do let's just have fun with it and there's something kind of sincere about this movie that I think makes it work and if I had to narrow that down, it, it would be uh, the, the two principal actors, Liam Neeson and his uh, real-life son, Michelle Richardson. And many people know uh, Liam Neeson's wife, uh, and also an actress, she passed away. Uh, that's Michelle's mother. And this story is about these characters kind of working through grief after uh, the woman in their life dies. So there's, there's an autobiographical nature to the story. And I think just kind of watching father and son talk to each other, and then there are a couple of good scenes where they actually kind of talk things out, uh, I think works. And it's, it's just kind of, in some ways, charming. I think the characters are charming. I think the countryside is charming. There's at least one or two uh, renovation montages, uh, which is kind of fun in an HD TV sense. And so I don't think it's good, but I think it's fine. I think it's a fine movie.
1: Well, I mean, okay, I, I will say that, you know, when when I say that the the Tuscany setting does a lot of heavy lifting in this movie, I mean, I do genuinely mean that. The photog- the cinematography in this film is good, and I mean, you can't do, it's it's hard to mess up the sorts of vistas. That are on display yeah, yeah. in this film. I mean, we saw it uh, in the the trip to Italy, the the Michael Winterbottom film with Coogan Bryden. I mean, that was another film where, uh, again, the just it's really difficult to take the Italian countryside and screw that up, right? Like that, it's just that glorious and picturesque and wonderful. Liam Neeson, similarly, I mean, he's such a a reassuring, interesting screen presence that even though the screenplay is really trafficking in, at least in in my mind, just not, doing absolutely nothing new, Lee, Neeson is enough of a pro that he can kind of... He can come close to selling it. I don't think in the end that he comes out on top. I think the material kind of defeats him just because there's only so much you can do about kind of this very rote story about you know a father and a son who are estranged from each other and there's a a saintly dead wife slash mother in their past and that's sort of the 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 sticking point in their relationship and they have to have kind of a big heart-to-heart scene in order for them to move beyond that i think that that's kind of like you said, Wade, in the first two or three minutes, you kind of know this is where that story is going to go. Even their banter kind of feels like, okay, this slots very comfortably into that sort of of setup. Neeson does, uh, like I said, he he's does a good enough job with what he's given that you you don't feel like it's entirely a waste to have to be watching him on screen, but. But I don't know that there's a, a whole lot else that I could really point to in this film. Even Richardson as his son just there's not he doesn't have the presence, I guess, that that Neeson has in this film, which, in my opinion, becomes a problem when so much of the relationships kind of have him as the linchpin, you know, him as son, him as uh as a romantic interest him as a friend those those relationships just don't hang together partly because he is defeated even more extensively by the material than neeson is
0: yeah i mean richardson it's hard for him to keep up with his dad And, and neeson is known today kind of as an action star but he really wasn't an action star until taken And he shows his dramatic chops here. And I I enjoy watching him. There's a scene at the beginning where the father and the son, they come together and they're driving to get to this villa. And they are bantering back and forth. And this is a textbook scene in this type of film. You know that they are going to argue. We know that... The film needs to emphasize that they don't have a good relationship, and instead of doing it subtly, this film, which wants to play itself up as a comedy, sometimes a romantic comedy, a romantic drama, comedy drama, whatever, they they have to overtly imply that they don't get along. So we're like, okay, but I thought it was still funny, kind of in some scenes, uh, watching Neeson go back and forth and and Barb with his with his son, and. I enjoyed the photography. Uh, we could probably go on and on about that, but th- there's some fantastic shots of this particular place. And two, the film allows us to come together with some of the locals and walk around with them and even celebrate with them. And there seems to be this, this communal nature to that particular place. So I enjoyed watching. I enjoyed watching that. When Michelle goes back to his small apartment, and we we get this sort of uh, blue image of his bed and of his couch and of his dresser. There seems to be this distinction. So I think the movie does a couple of things uh, well. I will say, I I thought that the scene where all the emotions come out uh, in this uh, kind of dusty room with light piercing through the windows, creating shadows on their faces. You can you can see the dirt kind of illuminated uh, through the sunshine. I thought that that was a pretty good scene. And at one point, another character comes up from behind and and hugs uh, the other one. Uh, Neeson does a lot of the carrying there. And I think just on his talent alone, that scene r- really worked for me.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, that scene kind of... For me, it epitomizes just how thin the material is because Neeson, he does kind of pull out all the stops in in that scene, right? Like he's he's got the he's got the sob in his in his voice going, he's got, you know, those suppressed tears. He's he he literally at some point stands up and he just covers his face with his hands, you know, very actorly stuff. I don't think it really succeeds though in in selling this material I, I just don't think it's the sort of material that can be sold it's kind of it's it felt to me like the symptom of an actor just trying to muscle uh dialogue into something compelling through sheer force of craft and neeson he's a craftsman he's very good at what he does and you can tell you can see him really just going for broken that scene i just don't think there's really any there there and I, and and part of it again is i don't i don't think there's a lot of specificity to the conflict here and there could have been some it's not so much that the basic outline of the story is one that can't be interesting or is unworthy of everyone's talents simply because similar stories have been told in the past that's not true. Like uh, There's lots of way, different ways to approach this kind of story, and it's not necessarily a, a strike against a film to for it to be telling a story that's been told before. I think the problem is, though, that uh, Darcy, who not only directed but also wrote the screenplay, doesn't really have a whole lot of specificity to these characters. What I'm thinking of is... Uh, there's a, a young woman who uh, Richardson's character meets in this small Tuscan village uh, when they arrive on site to sort of rehab the the old home and sell it. And they kind of have this meet-cute thing where he, you know, trips over some chairs and falls over and she leans over and says a witty remark because that's how these sorts of meet-cutes go But later on, uh, Neeson and Richardson are having dinner at her restaurant. She's the proprietor and a person from her past shows up and there's obviously some tension there. And there's a moment where she's kind of in this confrontation with this man and some other locals kind of get up from their tables where they've been eating dinner and they just sort of silently stand Beside her and they together they all kind of stare this guy down until he leaves the restaurant and it's a very brief moment and it's not really ever explored much detail again but there's a hint there of the kind of specificity that I was really hungry for elsewhere in the film you get the sense that there's a tight-knit community here and uh, this woman is is a part of that community so much so that even though she doesn't really, she, she's not related to any of her patrons. They're not necessarily, uh, deeply invested in, in seeing that, you know, she doesn't get bullied by this person from her past, but there's a a communal bond there where they feel protective of her and defiance towards, uh, somebody who's encroaching on, on her restaurant simply because they're decent and that's kind of the, the decent sort of small town spirit that they had. And that's the kind of thing that this film really needed more of where it's less that it needs to be telling original story that's had never, has never been told before. And more that Darcy really need to find little ways to, uh, find the specificity in these particular characters and this, uh, particular iteration of the story. And with the exception of small moments like the one I just mentioned, I just don't think that he really puts a whole lot of effort into exploring that. And it's a real shame. Yeah, I, I
0: like the communal nature. I, I like that scene. And I would have loved to get to know some of the locals a little bit more. And we, we get the sense that this place could provide healing for them. And, and it's it's sort of overt, right? So in my notes, when they show up to the house and it's a mess, I, I just wrote metaphor, question mark, because... <laughs> no question mark. <laughs> yeah, there shouldn't be a question mark. Uh, and, 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 you, and you get it. And some of that is, is done fine, and some of that it, it it is poor. But what is it about this particular place and its history that bring out honesty in their relationship and that can provide healing for them as individuals. And it seems to suggest that part of it is, is not that, oh, they just have a lot of memories, but this is a particular place where people know each other and they care about each other and they're open and honest with each other and that's what this father and son need. And, and there's this other sense too where the, it, it is a memory. It is a place where they go back to and they try to fix up the past in order to uh, to really get rid of it and I would have liked the film to lean into some of those aspects uh, a little bit more and then two you know I mentioned just the the cliche nature of the story we've talked about it a bunch but there's a great scene and I talked about it earlier too uh, where they have this the father and son they have this great conversation and they really kind of put everything out there uh, and then the film, realizes oh we need we need a climax so we're gonna separate them and then try to bring them back so there are times when it it almost seems to break or want to break the formula and then realizes oh no like we can't do that so let's find something else i i think you know i i think the the character of natalia i I think she's charming I, i think it works. It just, it, it needs some depth. Uh, and I, I did, I too, I wrote that note, meet cute, question mark, down whenever they meet. Uh, which I guess I shouldn't have had the question mark on that either, Kevin.
1: I, I, I get the sense, Wade, that when you uh, take notes on a movie like this, your question marks are extremely sarcastic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very no, cutting. Be, maybe a little, uh, maybe a little psych- sarcastic. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 to- I totally get what you're saying. At the same time, uh, I don't know if I would mind watching this movie with some family and friends for just kind of escapism, where it's like, okay, things are going to be fine. And I don't know. Sometimes it's it's nice to watch that every once in a while.
1: It does definitely have sort of a lifetime family movie quality, <laughs> where it's less important that it does um, something innovative and more important that it's just sort of – uh Comfort food in cinematic form, and there's a place for that. I, I think. I just. I don't. I. I don't see, even, kind of a, a baseline level of of trying to rise above that. I, I guess the moment where you talk about the uh, after their their big heart to heart scene towards the end of the movie, uh, they ha- there's this later conversation where uh, Richardson the the son. Is uh, speaking to his father, and he says, You know, you, th- you think just because we had that heart to heart moment that that just erases the past and that we're all okay now? And you get the sense that that's Darcy sort of lampshading, like almost as if he knows that he's trafficking in cliches and tropes here. So, that, it, which in one way, it's good that kind of awareness of perhaps the film's limitations is present. But for me it almost that almost makes it worse because it 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 speaks to Darcy knowing that he can do better and that he he's fully aware that this is extremely unchallenging material and yet he's just going to kind of stay there and not try to elevate it anymore and I I just in the sort of film where you know the the two uh lovebirds kind of there there's a a scene at night where they they're by a lake and he falls in and then he kind of like tricks her to come closer and then he pulls her in it's yeah. just these are these are things that you would expect to see almost in an SNL sketch of a parody of of romantic comedies and i just i i think that <laughs> the these these actors and this filmmaker can do better and uh should do better yeah well you mean kevin you haven't fallen
0: into the water and then (laughs) when your significant other laughed at you you're like hey help me out and then you pulled her in that's never happened to you before i would be very
1: surprised if that has happened to (laughs) anyone before
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, outside of movies, outside of the movies, uh, if that has happened to you, make sure to let us know because that will affect our review of the film. Uh, (laughs) I will stand corrected if if, at least a half a star, uh, maybe a full star, uh, if depending on how realistic that scene is. Uh, Let us know what you think of Made in Italy. It releases today so you can check that movie out. Tweet us at Pod. At SeeBelievePod, Believe P O D or you can email us. Seeing and Believing C-A-P-C at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere, our summer of darkness. If this if this film was too mushy for you, our summer of darkness continues with our review of Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity.
1: So late for the summer the might be slow Maybe I should speed back
0: That song is Summer by The Fisherman. You know what, Kevin? We talk about how much we appreciate all of our listeners who support us via our Patreon campaign. We really do mean that when we say so on the episode. If you support us, it, it's just something that keeps us going, and uh, we're, we're extremely thankful. If you'd like to begin supporting us, just hop on over to patreon.com. Forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of great donation levels, and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for five dollar level. And you know, we were talking about made in Italy, and we we're talking about creating things and renovating things, Kevin. And I was just thinking about what, what could someone create, or maybe renovate, or even buy
1: for five bucks. Uh, five bucks would buy you a a birdhouse, that. Uh, is just for birds that's that's how uh how little uh creativity i have to to apply to uh post made in italy Mm. uh five dollar uh five dollars (laughs) thing this this week you know kevin i this whole time i thought that
0: you would you would plan these five dollar things out you know you thought about them all week and come ready but it sounds like today, maybe you're just kind of making them up as you go.
1: <laughs> it does sound a lot like that, doesn't it? I mean, what what can I say? The The lockdown, the quarantine, the virus stuff, that's all kind of... It takes a toll after a little while, Wade, and eventually it, it gets the best of us. Uh, but I'll say this. I would,
0: I would like a birdhouse at my office house. We've had so many birds... Mockingbirds, bluebirds, blue jays, cardinals, lots of copperhead snakes, uh, a mole. We have an arm. We have an armadillo <laughs> at our office. Uh, the house next to us has mini horses. So I would love to attract as many animals as possible.
1: Well, uh, I'm not sure that a single birdhouse could do that. I, I was I was tracking with you through the first. You know, few uh, bird species that you were listed. But once you got into copperhead snakes, I started to wonder <laughs> where that whole thing was going. Yeah. I've, I feel like I've been on an odyssey in the yeah. past 30 seconds.
0: Well, if you can get the right birds in there, they'll eat the, the copperheads. But they got to be the bigger ones. I don't know if five dollars will get you a huge birdhouse where like, like a vulture or something, but it's I guess it's possible.
1: Cassowary. Yeah. Emu. <laughs> I mean it would have to be a huge birdhouse, but you know, we we can we can do it. Yeah.
0: Well I just like to highlight just all the all the wildlife. I almost actually stepped on a was jogging, almost stepped on a copperhead yesterday, had to jump over the copperhead. <laughs> oh god. This is a true story. Oh, I don't know. Man. I it it is a pretty big one. I was jogging in the park and jumped over it and, uh, yeah, almost didn't get to talk about Made in Italy. But we're here today, <laughs> and we do want to thank Truly you. Truly
1: horrible fate.
0: <laughs> That's the thing. You know, you're lying and you're like, tell Kevin I thought the movie was fine. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, uh, listeners, you can support us on Patreon, Patreon, get more exclusive content just like this where we can just talk about all the stuff going on in our lives uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast
1: yeah and it's especially important to donate to our patreon i feel like now that we know that wade is going on jogs and in snake infested <laughs> lands you know get Start donating enough money to us so he can buy a treadmill for his garage or something. <laughs> I feel like that is now a moral imperative. We also thank all of our listeners who, who take the time to write in with their feedback or even offer some of their own film criticism for our perusal. Listener Lindsay Dunn tweeted in a couple of weeks ago. We forgot to read this tweet on the air on last week's episode episode, but Lindsay had some thoughts about The Vast of Night, which she enjoyed quite a bit. She writes, for anyone who gravitates toward atomic age Americana, Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night offers a heady cocktail, which may have viewers asking for a double. And then she shares the link. It's at oneofmystories.com. That's the numeral one of mystories.com, and you can find that review and others on that website. So thanks so much, Lindsay, for writing in and uh, sharing your reviews. It's always really great to uh, see our, our listeners flex their film criticism muscles as well. Yes, listeners,
0: we love to hear your comments. Make sure to send us those. You can also rate and review the podcast. You can do so on iTunes iTunes or Spotify. Just search Seeing and Believing gives a star rating and a quick review. We appreciate all of those and, like we mentioned before, it keeps the podcast going and helps us to get the word out on Seeing and Believing. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've
1: been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? It's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability. Group insurance, industrial stuff and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. Wish you tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure? I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. We're back with the second half of our show and the second part of our Summer of Darkness marathon, where we look at some really well-known film noirs and deepen our knowledge of that whole genre. Wade, You kind of let the cat out of the bag at the beginning Mm. of the episode that I love the movie that we're going to be talking about here in just a minute. And there's no real point in in teasing it. But yeah, I I like Double Indemnity. It's just super good. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Uh, Yeah, no. And I, I will
0: kind of offer my opinion, but I'm pretty, I'm probably pretty close to you in my like
1: of the movie. Good to know, Wade. Uh, For a lot of people, Double Indemnity needs very little introduction, which is why I'm kind of almost bringing us lurching directly into the discussion without summarizing it first, because really it almost feels like the sort of movie that a summary is almost unnecessary. Mm. This is, of course, the 1944 film directed by Billy Wilder and starring Fred McMurray and the great Barbara Stanwyck as a couple who schemes together to bump off Stanwick's husband so that they can finally be together and spend the ill-gotten gains from the insurance policy that McMurray's character sold to that same husband. Things, of course, in the grand tradition of film noir don't go exactly according to plan. As McMurray says at the beginning of the film, "...I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman." And if that's not a almost a statement of purpose for film noir as a whole, it comes awfully close. Wade, you've already said that you like this film quite a bit, but I'm curious to hear you elaborate on that a little bit more. Uh, where did this film, your initial encounter with it, arrive in your film noir education, and how did it play for you this time around? Yeah, well... I I saw this
0: movie a long, long time ago when I was, I don't know, probably before I was a teenager. So I remembered pieces of it. And then a few years ago, three, four years ago, I watched the movie again. And it felt like I was watching it for the first time and just thought it was amazing. And it was great to watch it again a few days ago because I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly where the film is going to go. We're thinking about noir. And I wondered, okay, w- would I like it as much as I did during that first watch? Which was just, it was just an intense experience. And yeah, I really do appreciate this movie more and more. And we opened with In a Lonely Place. Uh, we could have easily opened our Summer of Darkness with this movie because it feels like the quintessential noir film. You have uh, the film fatale. You have... Uh, an unhappy man. This is a genre about unhappy men, and even at times toxic masculinity. So we see that in this uh, in the movie. We have the anti-hero, it's surreal in many instances, and it's a hard-boiled detective story. So it it really is everything that is noir, and it does I mean, it, it hits all of those notes perfectly. And I mentioned last week that In a Lonely Place is one of my favorite noirs. Uh, I could easily say the same thing about Double Indemnity. This is, this is also one of my favorites. And there's another movie we're thinking about talking about, which is also one of my favorite noirs, too. So I, I've got a handful uh, that I'm just so happy to talk about. But, uh, Kevin, you've, you've watched this many times. Uh, how was this rewatch for you? Uh, and is this, I don't know, fourth, fifth time? How many times have you seen this movie?
1: Oh, I feel like I've lost count of how many times I've seen this movie. It's a great one, mm-hmm. and I don't—it's it's not a film that I constantly rewatch. I feel like it's it's the kind of treat that you kind of put off for a while so that when you come back to it, it's just—it has a freshness to it that uh, just is not diminished by by just— over overwatching, I guess if that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. It's just this is for me. Just uh, it, it's not a singular film. By by which I mean it's not it, it's not a movie that has elements that couldn't be found in other pictures. I mean you think of something like uh, a Citizen Kane where. Nothing really had been seen like it in American filmmaking up to that point, point. and still coming back to it, you see things in Kane that you don't necessarily see a lot of other filmmakers doing, or at least a lot not, not a lot of mainstream filmmakers doing. Double Indemnity—it's it's a really solid picture that has a lot of the hallmarks of film noir, and by that, I don't—I'm not talking about the the plot elements because. I don't know. One thing that kind of revolutionized my understanding of noir as a quote-unquote genre is the fact that it's almost not really a genre at all, but more of a mood. There are Hmm. different kinds of stories that can slot into a noir film where it's best known probably for being hard-boiled detectives and femme fatales and everything you mentioned, Wade, but they don't necessarily have to have those elements in order to be considered noir. What they do have to have is a certain mood, which you hinted at when you talked about unhappy men. Because that's certainly part of it. The, The idea that when you go into a noir, you know you're watching a noir, not because certain story elements crop up that you've seen in other noirs. You know you're watching a noir when the atmosphere hits you Mm. or where the lighting is done in a certain way. And this, I feel like double indemnity has endured so much because it has a lot of that quintessential mood. You think of that, that opening sequence where Fred McMurray is wounded and he goes into the empty insurance office so he can sit down at his desk and record his confession. And, uh, Wilder shoots him from a low angle, kind of on the first level of the insurance office while mcmurray's on the the upper level and the camera follows him as he walks from the elevator to his upper level office and the way that it's lit is is very dramatic like the the lighting is very bright so it show it shines on him starkly there's shadows that he's casting on the wall and it gives a certain sense that this is a man who's who's hunted by something almost there's there's something about the the camera movement and the lighting that says this is a guy for whom for whom hiding is no longer possible he can't hide from himself anymore he can't hide from the consequences for his actions the chickens are coming home to roost and i think that as we go through the rest of the film and see kind of everything leading up to that opening sequence that really brings it around and really enriches that mood so much more so that it's not so much about the crime. It's more about how Wilder is able to marshal all his filmmaking skills to make us feel a certain way about everything that we're seeing on screen. It's also a really entertaining picture. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit, Wade, because I just... Watching this the second time, I just, I couldn't help but say out loud, I love this movie when a particularly good line got rattled off. I mean, this was a, a screenplay written by, co-written by Wilder and the great Raymond Chandler from a story by James N. Kane. I mean, that's a incredible pedigree and it really shows in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I... I think I've appreciated, I appreciated more this uh, viewing, the transitions between some of the scenes, and uh, there, there's one, it's near the beginning of the film, it's when McMurray is about to go back to the house to meet with Barbara Stanwick again, and he mentions in the narration, uh, he, he talks about that leg, that leg of hers, that ankle, and we see a shot of her coming down the stairs. It's a close up of her ankle and, and and part of her legs, and we think that it is a, he's rehashing the scene that already happened. And then, boom! Actually, it's him visiting for the second time. We get some great just just cuts, and the film is is snappy. Like the dialogue. I mean, there's a, there's a scene when the the characters meet for the first time. He talks about uh, him driving too fast and, and getting pulled over, and I mean, it's just it, it really is just. It's, it's wonderful, and so we can talk about noir, and we can talk about uh, the style, the the mood, and everything like that, uh, but ultimately, I think what makes Double Indemnity good is, is it highlights all of those things, and it's within this genre or subgenre, whatever we'd like to call it. At the same time, it's just a really well-made film, and it's fascinating because I was thinking a lot about noir and uh, neo-noir and films that could be categorizes neo noirs today and how each it seems like each decade almost has a set of noirs that come out that are popular and they reflect the mood or the social issues of that particular decade. And if we look at something in the 40s and 50s is kind of the the heyday of of the noir and it's it's coming from these these hard-boiled detective uh paperbacks and these individuals they're filmmakers and writers are coming out of the great depression uh, this film was released a month after d-day which is just kind of wild to think about uh, and it really does kind of reflect that mood there's this pervasive nihilism in many of these films Uh, Crime is becoming more significant during the Great Depression. Uh, Even criminals are being uh, seen as as heroes. Uh, People are weary. Uh, they, They feel like there's this pervasive darkness surrounding them, and that's what we see in these movies, where characters who are not perfect... Uh, will turn and do horrendous things. And so I think that's what noir does well. And if you look at something like David Fincher's Gone Girl, which some people would classify as a neo-noir, it it takes the mood of our particular world, and that is uh, communication, that's the news outlet, uh, that is uh, this... Uh, tabloid journalism climate and it emphasizes that and so it's it's really fascinating to look at this particular film and see how it fit within that context and then within noir as we see in almost all of these the characters they lose agency they lose control because they have found themselves caught up in something that they can't stop and that's what we get with uh you know uh, McMurray's character. he's caught in this stream in this river and he cannot get out. and he's giving in into a twisted nature. He's not a good person when this film starts. He immediately begins to flirt with a married woman, but he's not a murderer yet, but he has that capacity. He just needs a nudge. And I think that says a lot about this time period, a lot about the f- about the fears. Of people during this time period,
1: yeah. There's uh, th- there are some that that theorize that a lot of the mood of noir does grow out of this wartime anxiety of largely uh, male writers and filmmakers who look at. Two things. They, they look at the the horrors of World War II and fat and the rise of fascism around the globe as something that really calls into question just the capacity of of the human heart for goodness. Like, is, does is the human heart inherently a dark thing? And that's one thing that really in, informs lots of noir and this film specifically. You you talk about. McMurray's sense that he he just needs a little bit of a, a a nudge in order to start down this path, and that he feels once he's set on that path, that there's not really a whole lot he can do to let go of that red-hot poker, as the script puts it. He has he has hold of red-hot poker and he knows he should let go, but he kind of doesn't want to. And that's something that is just so uh, intrinsic to to the tragedy of, of the film where it's it is kind of it, it, There there is a sadness to this film not uh, so much overt but just uh, in the sense that McMurray knows that he's no good and he knows that Phyllis is no good but he knows they're going to go down together straight down the line as as they say and that's one element of it. The other element of it is uh, with the anxieties of men in wartime worrying about the women back home and what they're plotting in the men's. Ads. <laughs> so this is this is something else that uh, a lot of critics have have drawn out. the fact that film noir has has femme fatales and regards women with suspicion, largely because of anxieties that grew out of feeling like there's a disconnect between the domesticity that existed before the war and the domesticity that would exist once every once the war ended and everyone came back home. And that, informed by this larger anxiety about the darkness of the human heart, conspired to create this really unique mixture of of themes that come out in so many noirs where the the people in them are are not good people, but they do sense that there's something there, there's something wrong. Like they're they're not just wholly depraved. They're bad people. They're not entirely depraved. They know they could be better, but they know that they won't be better. <laughs> and that I think is just such a it's so it comes through so clearly in Double Indemnity, which is why it stands the test of time.
0: Well, it, it's fascinating that you talk about uh, suspicion because. Part of the plot of the movie, of course, is uh, Walter offering his confession. And he says to Keyes over the recording, like, you didn't get it right because Keyes didn't suspect Neff's character. And then at the end, he says, you didn't suspect me because you were too close. And I I love the performance here by Edward G. Robinson as as Keyes. And, oh, he's so good. I mean, he's he's amazing. And he's, he essentially says that he, he cares about Neff. He loves Neff. And that's why he didn't suspect it. Then you also have uh, uh, Mr. Diedrickson. He is killed because he doesn't think his wife would do something like that. He marries her even though his daughter... Uh, you know, thinks that he, she could be a murderer, could have murdered her mom, and so this movie is essentially saying, like, you have to suspect everyone; that everyone has the potential to do something really terrible, and in in one sense, that says something about human nature that I think is true: is that we all have the capacity for human, uh, for evil, and that evil cuts through the heart of every single one of us. Uh, at the same time, uh, it it does say something about uh, this malaise, this mistrust that's happening during this era. Uh, Kevin, I, I did want to ask you about something, and I thought it was fascinating. I wanted to get your take on it. But when McMurray's character, and I'll say this, for me, whenever I watch this, uh, whenever I see Fred uh, McMurray, I love him, by the way. I think he's really great in, in most of his films. It always feels like he's playing... Um, off character uh, he's playing against type because I grew up watching him in those live action Disney movies like The Absent-Minded Professor and Shaggy Dog <laughs> so whenever I see him here he he feels like he's, he's, he's against his character uh, uh, but he says at the beginning of the film during his uh, quote unquote confession he says that I don't like the word confession and yet instead of getting away and escaping the city leaving the country he gets caught because he wants to confess what what do you think what do you think that says about his desire for confession what do you think is the reason why he does that and is there any type of repentance or remorse that causes him to to want to tell this story and get the truth
1: out there it's it's interesting because there is the subplot between uh, Walter Neff, McMurray's character, and Lola, the uh, uh, the younger Dietrichsen, uh, uh Phyllis D- Dietrichson's stepdaughter, and how they they kind of have a, a quasi romance going on. like they they develop a relationship of some sort. And he has the sense that uh, he can leave uh, Phyllis behind. He has the chance to leave her behind and pursue some sort of future, either with Lola or uh, because of her. And by the end of the movie, of course, he he decides he's just he's no good. He's not going to pursue that. He he almost decides that he deserves. To go down, go down with Phyllis, one way or the other. He does go to that final confrontation between them, and that kind of does seem to speak to the the knowledge on his part that he he could be he could be good, he just won't be. Uh, he, I, I think, the thing that makes this film these characters so compelling for me is that. You do get the sense that McMurray's character at least he's not he's not monstrous uh, in the same way that that Phyllis is. I mean, you think of that that shot when the murder actually takes place where Wilder keeps his camera on Phyllis's face and just the the gleam that Barbara Stanwyck's eyes have in that moment is just uh, utterly transfixing and horrifying and you get the sense that Walter knows that about her and maybe is not wanting to go quite that far but he also doesn't think there's really any hope for himself so when when we talk about the confession it's less that he he he's he outwardly scoffs at the idea of confession he even says it's not a confession like you pointed out but he's he's drawn towards it in a way and i think that that does kind of speak to um, the fact that this isn't this is noir, but it's not the most nihilistic of, of Noirs. It doesn't have an entirely pessimistic view of humanity simply because we still have Neth and Keys who are kind of almost weirdly the real heart of the film. It's maybe telling that the final line of the film is "I love you to Keys. And then that's the note that Wilder chooses to end on. I think that that uh, is telling and has a lot of thematic impact.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, it he the way the the place I came down uh, is that he scoffs at the idea, as you mentioned, of confession, and yet he realizes the power of truth, and that this this young woman needs to know uh, how her father died, and he she needs to know what happened, and that's going to free her. In a way, uh, she won't be wondering. She won't be haunted by mystery. Instead, the truth will come out, and and there's a liberation there. And I I I do get it uh, when you say it's it's not completely nihilistic. Uh, it, it isn't. There seems to be there seems to be at the core this idea that that love does exist uh, and it gets twisted up. But but somehow um, truth and beauty could could come out. I I love the way that this this film is photographed and we could talk about so many scenes there's a great scene where uh, Barbara Stanwyck is about to go into McMurray's uh, apartment and she hears keys inside and so she hides behind the door and he opens it the way that's blocked, I mean it's just wonderful and then there are scenes where it, it just feels like darkness is enveloping the screen, that these characters are they are drowning in in this in this darkness and trying their best to come up for air. Uh, it it really is it really is wonderful. It, there's so many aspects of the movie that we could we could point out because uh, it's just put together so well.
1: Yeah, that uh, that scene you're talking about is just so so good. And uh, I don't know, I, it's hard for me to to almost speak objectively about this film just because i think it's just one incredible uh scene or or shot or exchange after another and i think that wilder was such a consummate craftsman that you can watch this film kind of just as an enjoyable lark or you can watch it uh and and really try to dig deeper into its themes and it rewards both approaches
0: yeah and once again they mention as as uh, characters did in in a lonely place, uh, Venetian blinds, and you know we get the lighting scheme through those blinds, and it reminds me too of Chinatown, uh, where a character grabs the Venetian blind. So I love some of those little touches that kind of carry through through uh, most of these noir pictures. Listeners, that is our review of Double Indemnity, the 1940. Four film from Billy Wilder. Let us know what you think of that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you really do need to check it out, regardless of knowing what happens, because uh, it really is just a, a wonderful picture. You can tweet us at, at cbelieve, Pod at cbelievepod. You can also email us at C A P C at gmail.com. We have reached the end of the episode uh, Kevin uh, I am moving out of my house next week as a family we are moving in with my brother because we're building a house and we're gonna be off so I'm gonna I'm gonna be lifting boxes next week so listeners uh, catch up on a past episode of seeing and believing and then in two weeks we'll be back with a new review as well as continuing our summer of darkness series and, and Kevin we've We've got some good ones uh, coming uh, their way, and we're going to be moving here soon out of classic Hollywood. So that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely keep an eye on our Twitter account. We will uh, probably announce uh, what the next film is going to be uh, on on that space. We're looking at. Uh, moving across the Atlantic, Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I, I think well, that might be all that we say for now, but <laughs> we we probably are not going to be in America for, for our next installment in the Summer of Darkness Marathon. Yeah, yeah. So that's
0: uh, that's exciting. So listeners, make sure in two weeks to catch our next episode and our next entry in our Summer of Darkness. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing.
1: We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristinPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.